All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of The Compliance Guy. And as always, I want to welcome Terry Fletcher to the show because it is Hashtag Terry Tuesday. Thank you, Sean. Glad to be here. And I know it's really early for Terry because she's <laughs> in uh, Hollyweird. <laughs> and actually, she's not. She's she's in one of the more beautiful parts of uh, California in the northern part, right? No, I'm actually in Southern California. I'm in the Laguna Beach area. Why did I think? Oh, you know why? Because you were up in Napa not too long ago. I go to Napa every once in a while, but I live in the Southern California area. That's right. So Laguna. So, yeah, you know, I won't be too, too far from you with Amanda Wesh coming up here soon. Uh, we're going to be in uh, Palm Springs. Oh, that's actually about 45 minutes from me. Yeah, we're going to be in Palm Springs at the California Bones uh, meeting. They've asked us to be there. I don't know if it's a keynote or their general, main general session on the first day, but, um, you know, it's always a treat when I get to hang out with, um, you know, my friends like uh, Amanda Wesh. And you and I, as a matter of fact, in May, we actually are going to be doing a couple of tandem sessions for the National Alliance of Medical Auditing Specialists, right? You have uh, yeah, a Yeah, virtual, session. but yeah. Yeah, we're both doing a session, so. Yeah, so uh, you get to be my wingman and I get to be yours. So, yeah, a little uh, bit different, a little bit different format, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, well, talking about formats, today's format, we're talking about who has the ultimate responsibility, right? When it comes to, making sure that clean claims are getting out the door, making sure that um, the proper CPT, ICD, um, HICPIC codes are being selected, ensuring that proper uh, application of modifiers uh, is taking place. So the question becomes, where does the buck stop? And, you know, we I think you and I are are both aligned on this, right? Because we both recognize that, you know, the government says any entity, right? And an individual, whether you're a coder, a biller, a compliance officer, an office manager, a practice administrator, a clinician, each one of us is considered an entity by the Office of Inspector General and by the Department of Justice prosecutors when it comes to looking at the False Claims Act or the healthcare fraud statute. So I thought, you know, when when you when you came to me with this topic, um, you know, a few days ago, uh, I thought it was a brilliant topic because I know there's always a lot of conversations that I see taking place uh, through the different societies that you and I are both members of, as well as uh, a lot of the conversations, Terry, that are taking place on LinkedIn, where you're getting tagged in a post or I'm getting tagged in a post and you know, uh, it, 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 so I, I was grateful that you you brought this uh, this topic up, and 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 I think our our listeners are going to, uh, I think, get a lot of out, you know, get a lot out of our discussion. I hope, and I think it's going to be uh, a, a fun conversation. So, what say you on this matter? Yeah, I think it is. You know, I just was thinking about it because it's not that I, I have clients obviously that are acting with non-compliance or anything like that, but I, I've, I've run across a few of probably a few contacts, a few emails of people saying, okay, I'm seeing some abuse. I mean, Sean and I try to stay away from the 
I'm air quoting F word, the fraud word, but fraud is intent. And, and, you know, it's, it's also the definition of the payer, but think about this when there's non-compliance and you just know it, there's fraud and abuse, there's bad faith. And if you're doing any telehealth, if you're doing anything that has been altered from the um, final rules lately, they use that word bad faith. If you're acting in that way, the OIG will come down on you like a hammer or false claims. Now, false claim act, that's, that's where we get our black and white, you know, in the, in the false claim under, you know, the, the title, the 31 USC 3729B in summation, basically it says the false claim act imposes liability on any person or entity who submits a claim to the federal government that he or she knows should or should know is false. And then it defaults to, it even gives an example of that it may be a physician who bills to Medicare for services they know or, you know, they have not provided, but taking a step back from that, because that's pretty severe, you know, some of the things that we try to, I guess, foresee are acts of bad faith or, you know, just try not to, to take things to the extreme or say, oh, I have an opening, you know, that you, you take, you know, somebody gives you an inch and you take a mile. That's, that's an old saying. And, and I know I, I bring up telehealth a lot, but I see that happening in, in that under the public health emergency. And now with some extensions that are coming out and you also, when staff are involved and that's kind of where I'm finding that there's some issues there's a lot of coders, billers, administrators, billing managers, you know, any healthcare professionals, not just the physician, where there's monetary involvement. So if you're getting a, a bonus on what you collect and you may not, and you know that, you know, if you submit a claim, you're going to get um, some money back on that and it may not be appropriate. Um, what about if you're a physician that works for an entity that they are in charge of your billing. They're in charge of, you know, how things are submitted. I have a, a good example of a physician that is dealing with guilt by association right now. And this doctor signed a three-year contract to work for an urgent care center. Their contract stated that if they broke the contract or left early, they would have to pay $22,500 plus $1,200 for each shift that the uh, physician was supposed to work for 60 days and they averaged 18 shifts a month. When they signed the contract, they were told there was a competent certified coder on staff and that um, they were, you know, had a good EHR, electronic health record and all this. Well, then the, he was told he wasn't allowed to code and he didn't know that. He said that the certified coder personally reviews the CPT coding of the charts and regardless of what the electronic medical record said, the practice administrator, who was also a part owner, manipulated the EHR to upcode. She did this by having triage staff um, on top of what the physician entered in, enter three complaints that ensured that every, and this is before the 2021 guidelines, that every review of system was addressed at each visit, even if it wasn't warranted. The physician questioned that, you know, that administrator about this, and they basically, and, and also secretly talked to the triage staff, and they said they were coerced into doing this, um, even if the patient didn't verbalize these review systems, because they were also told they would get bonuses based on what they were, you know, what was billed and what was received. And the physician was mortified, of course, and then it also raised the suspicion of that physician and talked to the certified coder. 
And at that time, all of a sudden, Blue Cross Blue Shield decided to conduct an audit. Remember, the buck doesn't just stop with Medicare. <laughs> the third-party payers are like, wow, Medicare's getting a lot of money right now doing some of these audits. Maybe we should look into that. Um, anyway, that physician wasn't was denied access then to their billing records. Anyway, it's probably too 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 um, too far into it to say long story short. But what happened is that that physician basically said, "Okay, I'm being held hostage by my employment contract, and I need to resign. This is just you know out of control." Now they're being sued by the clinic for breach of employment contract for terminating their relationship with them early. Looks like it's about sixty thousand dollars plus attorney costs. And the provider went to their malpractice insurance saying, this isn't my fault. And then I'll turn it over to you, Sean. The malpractice coverage does not pay for fraudulent claims. So I don't real, I don't know if people realize that, but it's for things that you, you don't anticipate that you didn't know was going to happen. And um, so now it's a mess and there, and because there was no access, he's going to have to try and prove that this is happening and the guilt by association. But what about those coders, those administrators, everybody who was kind of in on it that was getting bonused on that, even if they said they were co coerced, I mean, you need to you need to know better, right? Well, yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about. Right. So everybody likes to talk about intent, right? Intent to defraud. But you got to be really careful. You know, you, you specifically cited a, a sec, you know, a section of the False Claims Act. You know, I think you were talking about 31 U.S.C. Um, section 3729, right? Uh, if I heard you correctly. So yes. that that section of the statute, right? 31 U.S.C. subsection 3729. It's actually B1. But what it says is that specific intent to defraud is not required. So what does that actually mean, right? So. To say that the statement that the False Claims Act requires no proof of specific intent to defraud, it actually means that a person who knowingly commits an action is liable for that action, right? Even if the person didn't know they were violating the False Claims Act, right? So to your point, you were talking about managers, right? So let's just take a situation and say, you know, for example, a manager that submits a duplicate invoice to the government for identical work, that manager doesn't need to know that double billing is illegal, right? They don't need to know that it's an illegal act to commit a, what they call knowing violation of the False Claims Act. They only need to realize or know that the two invoices were submitted. So, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to during, you know, a, a prosecution, if I were a prosecutor and I said, you know, Miss Fletcher, did you know that submitting two claims for identical services was a violation of the False Claims Act? I don't have to ask that question, right? I don't need a yes or no answer for you if I'm a prosecutor. All I have to be able to say is, Ms. Fletcher, were you aware that two invoices were submitted for the exact same service? And that's enough under the, the, the 31 USC, right? You, you can take it a step further, right? Because everybody talks about manufacturers 
you know, what about the fact that you could have, I don't know, let's say a manufacturer who falsely certifies that its product meets all government safety regulations? Well, they don't need to know necessarily that its product will eventually be used by government contractors. You know, the rule basically says it's sufficient um, that the manufacturer knows its certification is false. Because again, remember, the False Claims Act imposes liability on only, you know, only on those who knowingly engage in conduct that is in violation of the False Claims Act, right? And by defining knowledge to include things like deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard of the truth or falsity, right? It was Congress's intent to impose a duty on every person, every Sean Weiss, every Terry Fletcher, who's doing business with the government to at least, you know, make a limited inquiry to ensure the accuracy of the claims and the communications that are being made to the government, as well as what's contained within our records. So, you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll have a chance to talk about documentation and and what's contained within inside an emr and that's a whole other conversation but i i think we need to talk about that at some time at some point uh in time because we're talking about who bears the ultimate responsibility and i think you know to your point terry and i don't want to speak for you but you know this is a joint effort right you know we can't just point the finger and say it's the physician's ultimate responsibility and the buck stops with him or her and the physician can't say the ultimate responsibility lies on the office manager and the certified coders and the certified billers and the uh certified auditors that i've hired right because the signature of a clinician on a cms 1500 form is the that provider's attestation that all information being submitted on that claim is truthful and accurate to the best of their knowledge, right? So this is this is a joint effort, in my opinion. Well, I think the other thing, too, you brought up a, a word that I think that for the coders, billers, um, certified, uh, you know, healthcare providers, healthcare professionals who are certified out there. Think about this. Sean talked about responsibility. Well, for those of you that are certified through APC or HEMA or any really governing body, think about this. One of the things within our ethics policy, so let's just kind of, you know, kind of take a left turn from the False Claim Act. It says it's our responsibility for all of our members, all of the certified members, as a condition of our continued membership and to hold on to our certification to conduct ourselves in a professional manner consistent with um, all the activities, again, ethical principles. But one of the principles, you know, integrity, respect, commitment, competence, fairness is responsibility. And a lot of people look at responsibility as a burden, but I like to look at it as an issue of trust. When you accept responsibility for something, and I'm talking, you know, let's just talk about the staff right now. Others trust you. They will follow through. Employers, you know, your, your physician seeking a healthcare professional, to, they place trust in you and your certification that you know what you're talking about. So a credentialed member has this responsibility or trust that you have these core values and you understand ethical intent or 
get pulling away from intent, ethical claims, you're understanding what is expected and making sure that you continue with the integrity of the actual claim and you know what that means. I mean, we talk about CDI, clinical documentation, integrity all the time. Can you support what you do? So yes, you could be responsible because it says any person who submits a claim under the False Claim Act, but let's just take it a step further. You could lose, if you're involved in something like this, what's your responsibility there? You could lose your uh, credential. You could be tagged now as somebody that does not have ethics, and it can really kind of roll um, downhill in that kind of situation. And so even though our coding bodies are not a judiciary body, so they're not legal um, entities, they are entities that do handle certain complaints and administrative, you know, insight. And they're looking at us as, you know, as certified individuals that we have an, an ethics policy that we follow that ethics policy and that we know what it means to um, have that trust of responsibility. So it, it kind of goes in different directions. Now, will the physician be responsible when the claim is there? Yes. I was talking to somebody recently. Who, who was it? It was an attorney um, and this, the healthcare attorney. And they were saying the one thing you have to keep in mind because they were using a third party billing company that was doing some things that were not accurate. And they said, well, did they pay them? And I said, they did. And they said, well, right there, if they're paying them, it comes back to the physician. So what about the billing company? And they said, well, they will have some responsibility as well. And there may be some fines associated with that. But when you enter into a, you know, a payment contract, then that now kind of, kind of comes back onto you. Same when you hire mid-level providers or again, sure. hire coders. So a lot of, lot of moving parts when it comes to who is really responsible when we find these things. Yeah, and that's a great point, right? So look, when the government, when the government is seeking civil monetary penalties and damages, uh, refunds, if you want to use a simple way of looking at this, right, outside of the CMP, right, they're always going to look at the entity that the money was paid to. They're going to go after the tax ID to where the money was paid. And if that's a physician who's a sole practitioner or that provider who's part of a group, they're going to go after the group. Now, where could the billing company or the coding organization come into play? They could come into play as part of the overall investigation by the Office of Inspector General where the OIG uses their authority to um, exclude either as a mandatory exclusion or as a permissible exclusion, that third-party billing company. You know, that's why last week I did my week of OIG compliance, right? And one of the things that I talked about, uh, or one of the days that I was uh, blogging about this, I did third-party billing companies, right? And I talked about their obligation, their responsibility to their customers and to the government to have a corporate compliance program in place. And the corporate compliance program with policies and procedures speaks to these things that you're talking about, right? Because it establishes standards of conduct. Well, 
like you, now you have way more letters after your name than I do. Um, and you know, uh, way, way more letters after your name than I think, uh, the, the average, uh, person working in our industry, My does. Alphabet and I give suit. You a, your alphabet suit, man, I'll give you credit for that because, you know, these, these, these tests are not easy. And I'll tell you, as I get closer and closer to 50, um, it is harder and harder and harder to learn things. It's harder to retain. You know, my wife's like, hey, I saw this commercial for Prevagen. I was like, give me a break. You know, you know, but there's there's some other things that people need to think about. Right. You know, we, we were talking about the false claims, back, but uh, false claims that. But, you know, under the FCA violations, it's not just the False Claims Act provision. Right. The, the, the aspect that creates liability for knowingly presenting or causing to be presented a false or fraudulent claim for payment. People have to also recognize that the false statement provision also exists. And the false statement provision creates liability for knowingly making, using, or causing to be made or used a false record or statement material to a false or fraudulent claim. You know, um, you have the reverse false claim, right? You know, which involves improper conduct to avoid paying the government or improper retention of an overpayment by the government back. You know, there's conspiring to commit a violation of any of the other liability provisions, right? And the provision is frequently used in multi-defendant FCA litigations where, you know, let's just say it's Sean and Terry, you know, we were co-conspirators and they decided to, you know, charge us under uh, 31 Can we say it was Homer and Gertrude and not Sean and Terry? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know which one's worse, being called Homer or being called Gertrude. (laughs) I thought I'd just put it out there and, and some of the, you know, the old, the old school names that nobody could send you cards and letters and go, Hey, my name's Gertrude. That's rude. <laughs> let's, let's move away from us. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, we're pretty ethical yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I've had a, I've had a, a, a couple of times where uh, I've had some interesting conversations with folks, but yeah, we'll, 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 we'll talk, we'll talk about Homer and Gertrude moving. Okay. On. Um, <laughs> But, you know, these are the things that people need to be aware of. And that's why I, you know, when I conduct investigations as part of a False Claims Act case, right, a key TAM, or I'm being brought in on a criminal matter. So it's under the health care fraud statute or, you know, uh, 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 you know, where they're adding on an anti-kickback statute uh, allegation for a violation or a stark violation. You know, I tell people all the time, it's not the crime that gets people sent to prison, it's the cover-up. It's not being truthful. It's not being forthcoming with information. I tell people all the time, when I'm conducting these investigations, you got to be straight with me, okay? I'm not here trying, you know, trying to do a witch hunt. You know, my job is to simply get the facts, I'm not here to assess blame. I'm not here to determine guilt. My job is to simply gather the facts 
present them to counsel and let counsel make a determination as to whether or not something is fraudulent, abusive, or wasteful. And, you know, again, you know, to your point, you know, I hold a lot of similar certifications as you, and you're right. You know, there are um, standards of, you know, standards of behavior, ethics that are expected of us as credentialed, certified healthcare professionals. And I will tell you, I don't want to lose my credentials. That's terrible. Yeah, that would be very scary. Well, also, it, it, would, me, it would ruin my career. Well, let's let's also clarify for since we're talking about the staff out there, medical billers and coders. You know, I get this question a lot, and you probably do too. They always say, "What's the risk of malpractice and negligence?" Okay, so let's right. let's talk. Let me talk about the difference for real real quickly. So, you know, medical billers and coders, we translate the services um, of what medical professionals, so our providers, perform. And then we try to interpret that from a doctor's notation or an, an, an APP's notation so that we can get them paid for that service. But remember what we do. So if the doctor fails to perform a needed medical service or performs the wrong service or makes the incorrect diagnosis or the mistake in patient's care, they can be sued for malpractice. But med um, billers and coders, we don't deliver patient care. And so you're pretty much protected from the liability of that kind of situation from malpractice. But, okay, what you aren't protected from, and this is, this is something you have to be aware of, you don't necessarily have to, okay, so you don't have to worry about medical malpractice claims, but negligence for errors, or if there was a coder or billing company, let's say, error that resulted in significant financial loss to a patient or practice or if it was money that was paid again by the federal government and it shouldn't have been, it shouldn't have been billed for, and we all, it seems like it always circles back to that false claim act, then you could be possibly liable for that. Definitely could have a lawsuit or possibly termination where you're really going to find you're going to have a problem. Let's just kind of move away from the claims would be privacy breaches. I've seen that all the time under the HIPAA. So let's say that you've got a medical biller or coder, who revealed private patient information, they could be subject to penalties if it was reported. And Office of Civil Rights, if they get a, a complaint against you, even if the breach was unintentional, I had one about five, six years ago where a coder biller came to me and said, I don't think this is right. And I said, well, what happened? And just in, in a nutshell, basically she was out to lunch with her fellow coders and they were talking about patients. And guess who was sitting at the next table and heard the whole conversation? One of the patients. Mm. Patient filed, yeah, oops. The patient filed a complaint with the OCR and they were responsible and they got um, they got penalized for that. And so you, need to, you need to know, privacy means you keep it in the office. And then another one, there was an insurance company that cited an example of a biller and a coder where their laptop was stolen because it they worked from home. Now this is big for those of you that work remotely. They worked from home. They did not have a, a secure space. And I know we've all pivoted to remote work and not everybody's checked to make sure that the workspace is appropriate under healthcare. But that, um, that coder biller was liable for the cost of notifying everyone that was on that laptop. There was an involved a privacy breach. And so you, you need to know your, your responsibility. We come back to that word 
not necessarily in the malpractice, but negligence, privacy breaches, yes, now you do have some responsibility on that front. And you didn't even hear me talk about a physician there. That's all about making sure that, you know, your commitment to your healthcare understanding of HIPAA rules, of intent rules for us, as far as are you trying to get, you know, a kickback for something? Are you getting bonused on something that you know isn't accurate? Then that's when you're, you know, it does kick in that you are going to be responsible for that. Yeah. I agree. I, I agree with you. You know, privacy, um, you know, we can do a whole podcast on that. Um, the number of cases that I've, I don't know if it was a, a privilege, um, but the number of cases that I've worked on for the Office for Civil Rights, or not for them, but um, dealing with the Office um, for Civil Rights on behalf of clients, um, what I've learned, I mean, you know, I did a podcast with Teresa Tollerson um, back in 2021, uh, probably June, I think, or July. Um, where her entity, you know, was targeted by the Office for Civil Rights um, after a breach occurred. And had they wound up uh, the government, you know, imposing the full force of the fine, they would have been the highest, it would have been the highest fine ever leveled against a medical practice. It was uh, more than $13 million. And wow. we wound up negotiating down to uh, about a million five, um, which is still huge. But I mean, yeah, privacy is something that you got to take seriously because they look at what the intent was on the breach. And, you know, if it was a malicious intent, you know, that could be a lot worse for an organization. But I want to I want to pivot back real quick. Right. Because we were talking about where does the buck stop? Well. At the end of the day, in my opinion, the buck stops with the physician, with the owner of the practice, with the physician whose name or clinician, because it could be a nurse practitioner or a PA or a registered dietitian or a physical therapist. To me, the buck stops with the individual whose name is on that 1500 form. Can I ask you a question on that? Yeah, sure. And because you do so much legal work, this seems to be a gray area. So let's say you've got a physician practice that is 10 physicians and one physician is just say dealing with something that is, is probably under the false claim act, but only one out of 10 and they are an entity. So they're under a corporation. Is it guilt by association? You say the buck stops with the physician. So obviously the physician that's committing, I don't want to call it crimes, but committing the non-compliance, let's put her bad faith, yeah. they're going to be responsible. Now, do they go after the entity, the physician, both? And then how about all the other physicians under that umbrella? That's a great point. So I'm actually handling a case right now with Robert Lyles from Lyles Parker out of Washington, D.C. And we have a situation where a provider was submitting claims at a level that exceeded what the documentation was able to support. And as a result, you know, because this was a question that came up from the physicians in the group, you know, who is responsible for paying the money back? Well, the entity 
the corporate entity to where the money was paid is who ultimately is responsible for paying that money back. Now, this is why you have behavioral clauses. This is why you have clauses in your contracts regarding um, physician responsibility for ensuring accurate you know, information, ensuring the level of documentation is correct, the right CPT codes, the right ICD codes, you know, those are being applied correctly. Um, and, and I'll get to the coder's responsibility in a second. Um, the, the group went after the physician, which they were entitled to do to offset the damages of the organization. Now, the government if they opted to prosecute the individual under the False Claims Act or under a criminal statute, they would go after the physician. The question would then become, who else had knowledge that these claims were being submitted? And remember, as I said before, you know, under 31 USC, um, you know, you're not required to have actual intent right there, there there doesn't have to be specific intent to defraud under right. 31 usc section 3729 b1 it says they know or should know i think the should right. know is interesting that's right you, you, you what the government says is you should have known but should have known yeah but let's go back and talk about this right because there, there is a level of liability, and I like using that word, because, and I think that's the word that you were using. There is a level of liability that should be applied to anyone who knowingly submits a claim that is erroneous. And I like to use the term erroneous because the majority of claims that are filed where there's bad information on it, there was no intent to defraud anybody. It was an errored claim. It could have been a keystroke. It could have been a number of things. So I like the word erroneous. But this includes coders, billers, and physicians. Remember, the False Claims Act imposes liability on any persons who knowingly submit false claims to the government for payment. And remember, it's the term knowingly. It, it doesn't say who intends to submit or demonstrates an intent to defraud. It just simply says any person who knowingly submits false right. claims to the government for payment. So <clears throat> to me, here, here's the, the guidance that I give, right? To any coders or billers. Um, you should not be changing CPT codes, ICD codes, or HICPIC codes assigned by a physician or another bill, billing clinician. And I know some of you are going to be like, are you kidding me? I'm not saying you can't. I'm saying you shouldn't, right? If, if you are responsible for reviewing claims before they go out the door, and as part of that review process, you also pull the documentation to ensure the documentation supports the level that's being billed or the supply that's being provided or the number of units as part of an infusion or the type of biologic, right? If you are uncertain that the documentation supports the codes that are 
submitted by the clinician for billing, put it back into a queue. Now, I know coders go, Sean, you don't understand. I have a I have a requirement to get X number of claims out the door every single day. I can't have a queue that has a backlog of more than 24 hours. Or I have physicians that don't check their queue and it could sit in there for a month and then I get in trouble for it. Look, guys and ladies, I understand that. I've worked with and worked for some of the nation's largest integrated delivery health systems. And I understand the pressures that are put on to coders and billers in these departments. But at the end of the day, you bear responsibility. You may not be the person that get that gets hit with a fine, or if you do, your fine may not be to the level of what they would hit a responsible corporation or a responsible physician who violated the False Claims Act or the healthcare fraud statute, but your penalties could be as bad or in some cases even more severe, which includes debarment, which is an exclusion from participation in the federal health care programs. And if you get excluded, you can no longer work in health care if you directly or indirectly impact remunerations to the organization. So remember, it's either direct or indirect impact on remunerations. And these debarments typically last 10 years. So my recommendation to coders and billers when I talk at you know conferences or I get a, a private message on LinkedIn or I get an email from somebody uh, or there's something on one of the listservs like NSCHBC that Terry and I are both part of, I always tell people, put it back into the queue. If the physician is not responding, then you need to bring it to your supervisor and let your supervisor deal with it. And if your supervisor is saying, well, we're not going to burden the physician, just go ahead and drop the claim. <laughs> you need to think twice about that because I'm telling you, that's a problem. Because well, that's that comes where back the to that. Fall, yeah, the reverse. Right. That comes claim. back to that. You you either knew or should have known. Remember, or should know is is actually in the statute. <laughs> or should know. And I when I read that over and over again. So we have a couple of clients that we look at all of their level fives. They send them over to us and I probably audit, I would say probably four to 500 claims a month. That's a slow month would be 300 for this one entity, but we only look at level fives. I wish we looked at all of them, but they said, because they got audited several years ago, they said, you know, we want you just to look at everything and we take your recommendation is should this leave the office or is it a different code? And so we make recommendations. So I audit all these claims and make recommendations on what I, how I would have coded it. And so then we have the physicians review it and sign off on it. Well, we got a physician, just like Sean said, that just says, I don't have time to look at this. And I said, okay, well, if you don't look at it for 30 days, you could be not getting paid because there's time limits on submitting claims. So you're either doing it for free or you may be getting your lesser charge if we don't believe it's a level five. And just little things, you know, I got doctors saying that um, for telehealth, for example, they're billing level fives and they said uh, something in the note that said something to the effect of um, this was under a audio <laughs> and or audio and video visit. I'm like, you need to pick one. 
if it's just audio, then it's a phone call. You can't say audio and or audio and video. I want to see what platform. I want to see that it's audio and video if you're billing an office visit and then either timed or medical decision-making level five. But we do downcode probably, I would say 10% at least. Sometimes it's a little more depending on the, the physicians they have. And we say, but we want you to sign off on this. Like Sean said, you're not the ones changing the code. We're making recommendations of what it could be. And then the doctor signs off on it. But you, you really have to look at it from an ethical standpoint and an integrity standpoint. Always come back to clinical documentation integrity. If you know that it is not supporting the level of service or the procedure that's being submitted and you're the coder and biller, and then you're being told to just release the claim, you knew, you knew, and that's a problem. So that's protect true. yourself on that. And actually, Sean, I wanted to ask you another question on this, which I thought was an interesting question um, that I get from coders and billers all the time. Do you think that they need to have a professional liability policy? I'll give you my opinion, then you can give me yours. It may differ. I think that they should have a conversation with their employer to see if yeah. they're covered as under the umbrella and they could possibly get what they call a named perils policy, which is just additional coverage That's for inc incidents such as breach breaches of privacy, things you're, you're not doing on purpose, obviously, but they should see if they're covered under the umbrella before they mm -hmm. go into the expense. Right. Yeah, I, I I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, you know, I have I've been asked this question so many times, and I will give you my very honest response. I don't know enough about the coder liability insurance as to what it does cover, uh, what the limitations are in coverage. I can only imagine that it would be similar to other liability policies where they don't cover intentional acts of right. uh, fraud. Um, but, you know, again, I, I don't think it's a bad idea to look into it um, and have that conversation with your employer. Um, do some independent research on the code of liability insurance. I've always been fortunate, you know, our company, you know, because of the organizations that we work with on you know, um, you know, uh, different types of litigation projects, auditing projects, things of that nature. You know, our firm is required to carry like three million, five million of, of coverage. So we've always been, you know, covered as, you know, individuals of the entity under that general liability or that errors and emissions that E and O insurance. Um, right. But I don't think it's a bad idea. Uh, to to look into it but right. you know and, and no out, yeah. and no out there to the listeners policies differ so don't make assumptions either you know yeah. i noticed that some policies will cover an independent biller or coder but some policies if they're an employee of the entity then yes they'll cover for they call them incidental mistakes that's right so erroneous know, or incidental intent. that's right. right that's right. right so i think in in, in putting a, a bow on this one here um i think you know my takeaway from our conversation today is that all individuals within an organization have a level of liability. All individuals within the organization should look at themselves and, and, and say, the buck stops with me. Because if I'm a coder or a biller, 
and I'm sending that claim out the door, I I know if there's a potential problem. You know, it, it's it. You know, you can't you can't bury your head in the sand. You know, and take the ostrich in in the the sand. Uh, you know, ostrich with the head in the sand defense. It doesn't work. You can't claim ignorance or stupidity. Those are no longer, you know, justifiable defenses. They just don't work. Um, you know, the government has gotten more aggressive. They continue to get more aggressive. And the penalties and fines for noncompliance and or for violation of the False Claims Act continue to get steeper. So, again, open lines of communication between yourselves and your coworkers, yourselves and your supervisors, yourselves and the clinicians who you support in your in your jobs every single day, in my opinion, is critical. And failure to have these conversations and to continue to be a part of the problem makes you liable, at least in my humble opinion. I agree. And just to, just to, you know, kind of bounce that off and kind of wrap this up as well. And everyone also has some level of responsibility. And again, going back to what that is, that's an, a, a level of trust. And when you're accepting that responsibility and that level of trust and their, and your employer or, uh, an entity is placing that in you, whether you be a physician, whether you be a coder or biller or anything like that, that trust means that your ethical uh, demands, I guess that would be the great way, it has to meet a certain standard. And so make sure that just based on you know what Sean and I are kind of discussing here, that you know it's not called intent, it's called knowing. So it's not, if you knew or should have known based on white paper documentation, information that's posted. You know, and there's a lot of rules and regulations with Medicare that, you know, we know, but a lot of practices have not done their due diligence, but it's out there. And if something goes against what those rules say, then you could be held responsible. So liability and responsibility kind of go hand in hand. But I think our, our kind of our, uh, our, our lesson for today is that Yes, the buck stops with the physician, with the entity, the practice, but as a coder, biller, and a healthcare professional, you will have some responsibility as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well said. All right. Well, I think this brings us to the end of another hashtag Terry Tuesday segment on the compliance guy. As always, I want to say thank you so much to Terry Fletcher, my great friend, for Getting up so early on a Tuesday morning, uh, 7 o'clock Pacific Standard Time or Pacific Coast Time, and You're hanging welcome. out Thank with you. me. Yeah, and hanging out with me for just a little while. And to each and every single one of you, our, our faithful and, and, and dedicated listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us for a little while. Uh, as always, it's so greatly appreciated. And remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, be good to each other. And until next time, take care.